anyone who wants to sit down and have a great conversation and they ask insightful questions and they have a good sense of humor, we love talking with them. Well, if you find anybody like that, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Creative Ops, a podcast for creative people. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Creative Ops, a podcast for creative people. I am author and musician and host Christopher Talon. My guest today was Brennan Matthews. He is the editor of Route Magazine, which is really cool. You should check out in the show notes. He is also the author of the book that he came on to talk about. It's called Miles to Go, an African family in search of America along Route 66. It's a really great book. I hope you check it out. And I hope you enjoy the conversation that we had because... It really, um, I don't know, it feels relevant to what's going on now in, uh, in an uplifting way. If you're the kind of person that's been feeling like, man, everything's so divided, I think you might actually find this one very, uh, very nice, very peaceful, very, very inspiring. So check it out. Brennan Matthews, and check out all his information in the show notes. Get at this guy, read his book, check out Root Magazine, and uh, yeah, that's all I got. Enjoy this one with Brennan Matthews, everybody. thing I want to ask you about, I know there's a ton of things to talk about, is that you have spent some time in Michigan, which is where I am doing the show. From. I did, yeah. I was in a place called Jackson, Michigan. <laughs> I've had three guests now from Jackson. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's a small, well, it was a small place. That was back in 94 and 95. I think I left Jackson somewhere around uh april 96 yeah i went to um so i went to bible school there so i took a break in my life to come over to the states to i wanted to do some theology study and i just you know figured that was a good way to get into the bible a bit better and get to know god a bit better and be with a bunch of people my own age you know rather than i don't know it sounded fun but also what i was looking for at that time so yeah, that brought me to Jackson. Okay. Now we're going to be going kind of back and forth all over the place. Something that you say in your book, that while you're in school in Africa, you're the only white African guy and you stand out like a sore thumb. When I first got a hold of uh, your book through uh, Bradley, I, I saw the titles and it was, you know, an African family travels. And I was 100% thinking, oh, this is going to be a black gentleman that I'm going to be talking to. Sure. We're from Africa. Okay. And so uh, we're, my family have um, Canadian and Kenyan nationality. And so I've grown up in both countries, probably 70% in Kenya and then the rest in Canada. But yeah, no, I was the only student. There was one indian girl and there was me as the only white guy and there were three thousand black kenyan students and she also grew up in kenya as well and um yeah honestly i i i love being in those environments i for me i don't feel like i stand out as much as maybe other people may feel uncomfortable in those environments Mm. for me i'm a kenyan they're kenyans um we have you know over 50 tribes in Kenya, each with individual cultures and languages and backgrounds. 
And that would include white Kenyans or Asian Kenyans or Somali Kenyans or Indian. So, you know, we all just come together. And so in those respects at school, a lot of people who never knew me seen me as the one white guy, but I had a lot of great friends who never really seen me as white. They seen me as Brennan. How many languages did you speak then over there? Just just one that I don't even know how to say it because you're going to have to tell me because it starts with an X. And <laughs> so that's a South African. Koza is a South African language. Koza? That, yeah. Okay. Um, which I speak none of. But um, it's actually, that was Nelson Mandela's tribe. Oh, okay. Um, but in Kenya, the we most people will speak Kiswahili and English. Okay. And I also speak French. Okay. Oh, oh. Are, what uh, are, are you from? Uh, a region of Canada that is like uses more French, or is it just something that you learned because you grew up in Canada? Uh, no, I never knew any of it in Canada. Um, it's because I was living and working for a few years in Mali and in Burkina Faso, and they only know ah. French and, of course, their tribal language. So we had to learn it. We went to Burkina Faso for six or seven months to a French language school. And I had already known French a little bit. So I was the only one in the advanced class. Mm. And then my wife, Kate, with around seven or eight others, mostly Americans, were in the beginner's class. And I hated that class because it was I was all by myself with the teacher. So I was 100% the focus. Yeah. And I used to ask if I can join all the other students who spent four hours in the morning there. And I said, yeah. oh, you're advanced. They're just learning. I hated it. But I did come out with much stronger French. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. As, as a younger student, I would have hated the extra attention. As a grown up, I would have been like, probably almost demanded like, hey, I'm paying good money for this. <laughs> for sure. After high school, I went to do a sociology degree and I finished about a year and a half of that and realized I wasn't terribly interested in sociology. Did you know, like when you picked it, what you thought you wanted to do or did you just think, oh, this sounds cool? You know, most people get into social sciences because they don't know what to do. <laughs> uh, it's not a... Sociology isn't necessarily where the, the big bucks are. So a lot of people end up there either as a placeholder or because, you know, they're on track somewhere else, maybe to psychology. Or in my case, I parlayed that into, switched over to a degree in what's called community development studies. Hmm. So, um, you know, NGOs, international charities and relief and development work and those things. And so that's what I was studying in university back in Daystar, uh, which in Nairobi, well, south of Nairobi, about 45 minutes south of Nairobi. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I did my first degree. And that's where I met my wife, Kate. And then after Which you that, talk about in your book, but we'll get to that. Talk about in the book. Then after that, we got I got a job with an international charity called mm -hmm. World Vision. And World Vision was the largest, may still be the largest, but uh, charity in the world at the time. And so it was really exciting to be able to get a job with them because there was a lot going on in that office. There was a major drought in the region, including northern Kenya, during mm -hmm. this period. And so they needed people. And they had all these Australians and Americans and Brits and Norwegians and Danish. And, of course, many people coming from other African countries with expertise in the different, you know, healthcare or nutrition or food delivery or what agriculture, etc. And so just, you know, getting to work with them for a year and a half right out of school was really interesting and exciting. Mm. But after that, I asked, well, during that, but as I was coming to the end, I asked my supervisor, also a Kenyan, what do I need to do to grow in this international charity industry? And he said, you need to definitely get your master's degree. And I said, okay, that's fine. And so I started doing research and looking at schools in the States, in the UK, in Canada, in South Africa. And because we had some family in Canada, it just made sense to mm. really focus in on there. And then I happened to find a very high profile program in Halifax, Nova Scotia, 
Mm-hmm. And it was like an Ivy League program. And so I applied and I got in. And it was really cool because we had a lot of my peers were from Harvard and Oxford and MIT and other places that were all coming to do this two-year master's degree focusing on what was the degree was called international development studies. Mm. And so I finished that degree in a year and a half. I left them all there. I was so eager to get back to Africa. Um, mm. I left them all there and but I couldn't find a job in Kenya online. And we weren't really ready to just jump on a plane and go home because we wanted a softer landing than that. Yeah. And so a job came up in Mali, West Africa, uh, a senior role, and I applied and I got it. And that took us to West Africa. When I was a kid, I used to write short stories all the time. Yeah. So I was writing as a child. Um, I even, uh, music's a big thing for me. So I used to write music for um, rap songs, actually. Uh, for, yeah, for friends. Um, when they'd want to impress their girlfriends or whatever, some girl that they were trying to date, they'd yeah. come to me and like, give me you know, an equivalent to like $5 and I'd write them some real nice love song or rap song. And um, I'd never performed them, but I did write them. And... <laughs> So I started writing at a really young age. I started, you know, my creative writing classes or my English classes, even in primary school, my teachers would always really highlight those. So when I was doing the sociology degree slash um, community development studies degree, my minor was creative writing and African literature. And so those classes I got A's in. And all of my sociology and com dev, dev classes, I got B minuses in. And so I should have known right away that I was barking up the wrong tree. It just didn't feel right. Yeah. But it made sense logically, I guess, as a career versus writing. Mm-hmm. And then when I was working with World Vision, uh, World Vision Kenya, uh, 9-11 happened. <laughs> And it really impacted, of course, the whole world. In uh, the bio that was shared, it said that that specific incident really kind of set you off. And you were specifically covering um, like the the Kenyan response to 9-11, which self-centered Americans would probably go, well, well, who, who cares, cares about, about Kenya's reaction? reaction? But like, obviously, the whole world had a reaction to that. What was the big reaction there? You know, the, okay, so I wasn't covering Kenya's reaction, but I did write uh, a a short, you know, 500 word op-ed, if you will, and sent it over to different papers. And one of the papers that picked it up was a paper called the Chronicle Herald, which is um, the biggest paper in Eastern Canada. And Mm -hmm. I knew them just because of knowing that region. So they picked it up and they ran with it. And That was my first published piece. And then shortly after that, I was approached by uh, the head of the international relief team who was based in the Nairobi office as well. And he said, we need someone over in Northern DRC, the Congo. Mm. Will you go? And uh, can we second you over there until the permanent manager for this big project? It was a health and water project and sanitation till they're freed up to be able to go. And I didn't want to do it because I was married at the time. We, it was within my first year out of school and we got married right after we both finished Daystar. So I didn't want to leave Kate. Um, I hate flying and I didn't want to be in the middle of a war zone, which is what Northern Congo was at the time. Yeah. Three good reasons not to go. Three good reasons <laughs> not to go. I could, I could give you more. Um, but I, we felt it was a great career move. So at any rate, I was up there for, for a bit of time and I had a lot of crazy stuff happening. Like I was shot at numerous times and, um, yeah, it's, it's a shot. Were, were you like caught in crossfire or were they like, Hey, that guy there, let's shoot at him. You know, what's insane when world vision set that office up, it was, uh, it was was a, a simple office, but it was a nice office. World Vision's a great organization, so they set everything up professionally and hired great staff. 
but there's not a lot of building space in this in the region where I was. So it was in between two what sort of became rival generals. They each mm-hmm. had their own militia forces. And so different times, so for example, one time the two forces were playing uh, foot, uh, soccer against each other. And somebody must have got pissed because suddenly the guns came out and they started shooting at each other. Well, my nurse came running over. I was on the sat phone talking to Kate in Nairobi. And suddenly we heard pop, 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 bullet. And we could see bullets like hitting walls and stuff. And my nurse, my senior nurse, he was a real stocky guy. And he came and he tackled me and pulled me under a table. And I said, Kate, I got to go. I got to (laughs) go. So I left her nice and alarmed. But yeah, so it wasn't directly at me, but it, so it was more crossfire, even amongst people that were quasi friends. Or yeah, at a sporting event. At a sporting event, a casual one at that, not a formal one, but still. Yeah. So during wow. that, when I finished all that and I landed back in Nairobi safe and sound, I decided to write an article about my time over in Northern Congo. Mm-hmm. And the same newspaper that picked up the response in Nairobi to 9-11, also published that story. And that story was a lot longer. It was more like 2,000 words with lots of great pictures and et cetera. So that really, both of those were really my foray into being published in journalism. Huh. That's crazy because I think a lot of people would expect that, uh, you know, once you've built up a, a resume like yours, that you must have gone to the Iowa workshop or been in a journalism school or spent, you know, a decade behind a news desk before you got a big break or something like that. That's pretty wild. My experience is that people make their own breaks more often than not. Yeah. I think timing is everything. Something really big that happened was... I had worked as a country director in a number of countries with charities, and I just decided I wanted, again, to make that change. It wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, you, you get provided great housing and, and education for your child at a good school, and you know, they you're doing something that's helping other people, and and so it's it's been it's rewarding because you're actually blessing people who really are in need. Or to the poor more often than not. So that's that's that was always great. But I just there was just a lot of politics, inner office politics, inner agency politics, UN politics, and I just wasn't necessarily. Some people that's right up their alley. For me, I just wasn't feeling it. So after a decade of that, counting my degree, I decided that you know I really loved reading and I loved writing and I loved working with writers. I'd rather just focus in on doing that. So I left that field and I started writing for a South African magazine. South Africa has the biggest market in Africa. It's the only real market. Kenya would be sort of number two, but South Africa is really where a lot of headquarters are for global organizations. Over the years, they've moved into Kenya as well, and that's exciting. But for media, South Africa really was the one like they had South Africa Cosmo magazine or they'd have South Africa GQ or they would have South Africa Playboy or so where Kenya would have none of that. We'd have just very localized things. And what would actually happen is South Africa would then find a good media partner in Kenya and they would open up a Kenyan version of, let's say, Kenyan Cosmo or Kenya GQ or something of that nature. So they opened up a magazine called Twende. Now, Twende in Kiswahili means let's go. And so it was a great title, fun title. And it was a travel magazine. And they did a lot of really great stories. And they probably took Kenyan journalism up 10 notches. And so I was reading that. And I wasn't sure what to do with life. But I knew I wanted to write. And so I took a trip into Savo, one of our national parks. It's most famous because it, it's... There's Savo East and Savo West. It's huge, very forested, very wild, but lots of big elephants. And there was a movie called The Ghost in the Darkness with Val Kilmer. Yeah, yeah. So that was based in Savo about the man-eaters. It was based off the book, The Man-Eaters of Savo. Um, And so we were there, and Kate's mom had never seen elephants before. You know, a lot of Africans never see wildlife unless they live in the vicinity. 
yeah. where, where those wild those, those animals live. So she had never seen elephants or lion or anything before. So this trip, we decided to take her to the park. And all these elephants came into camp to drink at the river at the foot of where our tent was. And I watched the response and just the awe that this woman, this African woman who had never left Kenya before, had never seen these animals in her own country before and just how awestruck she was. And it, just, it was beautiful. And so I ended up writing a story for Twende about our experience. Wasn't sure if they were going to publish it. I just wrote it, sent it in, and they ended up publishing it. And you know, it was my first like, six-page, beautiful, lots of pictures, magazine article. That formed a relationship with Twende where I was in every other issue on assignment doing stories. And 2008 came and the American housing crisis came. Mm. And, you know, they say if America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. That is very true. Mm. South Africa suddenly about four months, five months after it really hit America, started to really struggle with its markets. And they ended up closing overnight um, three, four, five different, the main magazines that were in Kenya that were South African owned and operated. So we seen an opportunity and I hired everybody who was really good, who was being let off, designers, editors, photographers, and I sat down and talked to Kate and said, look, I want to invest all of our savings into this thing. And she thought it was an exciting idea. And so we launched Destination Magazine. And one of the key things that I've always known how to do is pull intelligent people in around me, people who know how to do stuff that I may not know how to do, but they're better at it than I am for sure, and learn from them. So not that's good. You must have your ego in pretty well in check then to not be like, oh, I can figure it out. Uh, you know what? I'm uh, I've been accused of having sometimes an ego that's bigger than it should be, but I'm not an idiot. And yeah. I wanted this to succeed. And I knew, you know, there's a line between having big dreams, and, but being real about them and going, OK, I can't do everything myself. Totally. I can't do most things myself, to be honest. <laughs> and that was the start. Yeah. Yeah, I I know what you I know exactly what you mean by that because I have a I have a book out that I think looks amazing, but I don't have anything to do with how it looks. I only <laughs> I only organize the words in between the covers. <laughs> yeah, by the way. Yeah. So, that's a good segue. Let's talk about your book a little bit. Miles to go. An African Family in Search of America along Route 66 is really our story of first discovering Route 66 when we were planning a trip down to Los Angeles in the summer of 2016. We weren't sure what to do with life. I'd walked away after seven years with Destination. Um, I had walked away from another really big New York job in, with another iconic magazine that was coming up. And I decided that we did, my, Kate and Tembi, my son, didn't want to be in New York, so we decided to walk away. Came up to Toronto to help someone start a men's magazine. And after I helped get that off the ground, we weren't sure what to do. So Kate said, Let's do a road trip. And I said, Where do you want to go? She said, I want to go to Los Angeles. You used to live there 30 years ago. I've never seen the States outside of New York. So I want to see the States. I want to cross the States. I want to go to LA. And I want to do it via road. And I yeah. said, cool. She said, Let's that'll clear our heads, quiet everything down, and then we'll see, you know, what opens up. Yeah. And you'll see more America than most Americans ever get to see, because I've seen a lot of the United States in terms of just like hitting all the different regions and stuff. But it was all very fractured. You know, I flew from one place to another. Right. I only saw two towns in Texas, you know, and maybe I drove along the coastline of uh, Northern California for two hours. But that's two hours out of the entire coastline of that state, you know? So yeah, very fractured puzzle pieces that kind of fit together to give you part of an idea, but never anything like that. So I'm fascinated by it. You know, the, for us, the thing is that Root Magazine, which came out of it, mm. 
is the national leading magazine for all for classic Americana, for Route 66, for road travel. So we have a great audience, a large audience, a national audience and a busy international readership as well. For us, this book is sort of the story of how it all began. And it all began by accident. A lot of people assume that we were Route 66 enthusiasts. We never knew anything about Route 66. <laughs> I We had heard of it. Maybe yeah. even because my son was so young at the time and we had seen the movie Cars. But otherwise, <laughs> we didn't know 66. And we were just driving to L.A. and looking for a great way to get there. That would be a, a real wonderful experience. Mm. And once we got online, which is what we do, we do a lot of research for things. We started discovering Route 66, its history, its culture, its diversity, its roadside attractions, its quirkiness, its stories. And we just got enamored. We fell in love before we ever even hit the tarmac. Yeah, well, the history that you give on the book, like this isn't too big of a spoiler, I don't think. <laughs> but you, you talk about the history and even the history of the, the highway is really quite fascinating. Just if you don't mind me taking one little piece from it. it was originally wanted to be highway 60 but then another state was like no we want 60 because they like the even numbers so 66 even was an accident which then just was capitalized get your kicks on 66 and one marketing miracle later then now it's america's highway kentucky actually can be thanked for that because kentucky wanted 60 and when they were uh, back in the mid-20s when they were doing all of the road designations anything ending in a zero was a major highway Hmm. And so Kentucky thought, well, we need a zero. 60 looks good to us. <laughs> Fortuitous, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty funny. You said, uh, sorry, this is jumping around a little bit, but you said that you're a big research at first before you do it guy. M- me too. Uh, how much time did you guys spend thoroughly like committed to doing this thing before you actually did it? So I think we <clears throat> started, we first said, let's do a road trip somewhere around May. And we actually hit the road in early August. So I think we probably did around two months. And when I say two months, I mean all day. Like literally Kate would go to work and I would be at work. And we would sit down when she would come home. And for the first three hours, I'd share websites and and attractions and stories I found. She would then do the same because she over her lunch break, she was doing the same thing. Hmm. And so we'd spend a lot of time in the day actually doing the research. Then we spend more hours together sharing that research and our findings with one another. So it was always very exciting. Or books would come in uh, that we would order. And when that book would come in, I'd dive into that and read everything I could find and share it with her. She'd go on websites and read people's biographies and stories and share them with me. So it was it was actually a real interesting time because we were doing a lot of stuff alone and bring it together. How much of your trip would you say was very much planned out? Like we're going to stop here. We're going to drive this many miles then we'll pull in here. And how much of it was like, OK, we've learned a lot, but now let's just see what we see. So. That very first trip, the one that actually started the ball rolling, was slightly less planned than all the rest of them. But I would say it was still quite planned. One tip that I would give anybody who's doing Route 66 is that if there's iconic, especially the motels, Mm. if there's iconic motels that they want to stay over at, make sure they book those in advance. Because a lot of them might have eight rooms, 10 rooms, 12 rooms, especially if it's summer or fall when there's heavy domestic, but also international travel, those Mm. places fill up very fast. So we booked everything we wanted to for sure see. We didn't know exactly all, for example, where we're going to have dinner, where we're going to have lunch, but we did have some of those places planned if it looked really iconic. Yeah. But there were legendary places, the Blue Swallow Motel in Tucumcari or Wagon Wheel Motel in uh, Cuba, Missouri, or... Uh, Boots Court in Carthage. Some of these, especially the neon-laden ones, we mm. we definitely uh, booked those early. Or if we were going to be in the desert, so we looked for interesting places like Oatman, Arizona. There's it's famous for its uh, burros that come down from the hills to visit with tourists all day long, and mm. tourists can buy like alfalfa and 
other types of food to feed them with. So the burrows stick around because they're being fed and then they disappear into the hills at night. But it's an old Western town and it's one street really. And the tourists love that experience. We wanted to stay there, but there was really not a lot of places to stay. The one hotel that they had, the Oatman Hotel, has sort of been closed to people staying there for decades. But they did set up places where like people can rent sort of these houses in the hills. Mm. Yeah, kind of an interesting thing. Mixed response, to be honest with you, but uh, <laughs> we thought it would be interesting. The whole place was sold as a ghost town. So we thought it would be really interesting staying in a ghost town. I'll be yeah. a bit spooky. So those types of things we planned early to make sure that they would work out. I've heard people say before about Route 66 that they found parts of it inspiring, parts of it kind of sad. I guess from an emotional standpoint, what uh, what were some of the things that stuck out to you, either, you know, the good or the bad that you saw along the way? We may be bad people to ask about that because we enjoy the spooky. We enjoy the downtrodden and like the, the sort of the runes and yeah. abandoned structures. Mm-hmm. We enjoy the relics, but we also enjoy, of course, all of the maintained places too. So we never had a lot of sadness traveling. What we did have was more of a reflection when we were in certain places. Mm. I talk about two places in the book. One is in Carthage, Missouri, outside of Boots Court at night. And another one outside of La Fonda up in Santa Fe. Both of those places, as well as the wagon wheel in Cuba and other places, when everything got quiet in those towns and all the tourists either went to their rooms or went to dinner or whatever, the sun has set, the neons come on, the road that was once busy is quiet. It's really easy to get very reflective and nostalgic. Mm. And for me, I thought about all of the people, whether it was travelers or whether it was people who once had dreams and invested in these towns, in these motels, in these businesses, or people who maybe in the 30s with the Dust Bowl or the 40s, these men and women going off with the military, heading west to their bases, or people in the 50s moving from places like Illinois and Oklahoma, Wisconsin, Ohio, and heading to California for opportunities and et cetera. Mm. And I just thought about all the people. Now, many of them long gone, you know, they've passed. Yeah. Of course, they get older and as we all do, they passed on. But they were all people with hopes and dreams and goals, and they were enthusiastic about what their future could hold. Mm. And the fact that I was standing where so many had been before, so many dreams had been, whether they were broken or whether they were realized, it, it just felt really surreal to me constantly as we traveled Route 66. Mm -hmm. And my son, who was eight and a half at the time, a very smart, reflective boy, he constantly would comment similar thoughts. And so he was also very sensitive to, to being part of history and standing in a place where so much history and so many people's dreams and emotions had been. So that was really probably the thing that we took more away than anything else. But I would say that the other thing is just people are amazing. You know, I got to say this because it it drove me crazy when writing this book. <laughs> the number of people, especially in the literary field, so uh, literary agents or editors or big public publicists, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sorry, big um, publishing houses. Yeah. They've seen that I'm white. They've seen Kate's black. They were constantly pushing us for an angle of racism. You guys must have felt a lot of racism up there. You must have had people who didn't want to serve you. You must have had people staring at you. You must have had people saying things and maligning you as a mixed race couple. And both Kate and I scratched our head for a while trying to figure out why that was so important to them that it had to be part of this book. Yeah. 
And then it started to dawn on me that they really believed it. Like one woman, a powerful literary agent said, and she's a very smart woman, you know, she represents great clients, great books. And she said, there's an elephant in the room and you're not willing to accept it. We know for sure America is a racist country and that you guys experienced a lot of racism. And for some reason, you're not willing to address that in the book. And so, you know, until you are, we don't, I don't really feel that this is the book I can get behind, even though I love the story. Yeah, that's bizarre. But somebody did say, sorry to cut you off. Somebody did say one time in uh, response to people getting upset about um, black athletes kneeling for the national anthem. Racism is so ingrained in America that people get mad when you protest it. Yeah. You know what? America is a complicated country. The whole yeah. world is complicated, but America is certainly complicated. But Very what much. I will say is that the, the biggest reason for me and Kate, why we weren't comfortable uh, putting anything to do with that in that direction in the book is because we didn't experience any of that. Yeah. And that's a huge takeaway, I think, that I hope readers will pick up as well. We had nothing but kind responses helpful responses you know it got a little i mean people would walk up to kate all the time i love your hat what a pretty dress oh my gosh where did you get those shoes yeah and these are older ladies like these aren't hip young girls these were people that were just being kind and and people that those editors would expect the racism from yeah exactly (laughs) middle america that's exactly it and you know what they weren't what people think they are and I hope that this book can shed some light on that and make our, our readers who may see America through that lens may mm-hmm. make them do a double take and not say, hey, this guy just didn't want to put it in, but say, hey, this mixed race couple with a mixed race son had a whole different experience from middle America than we ever thought they would. Yeah. And an immigrant couple on top of that, too. Because, I mean, I think that that would probably, some people, oh, well, you know, don't people ever go, hey, where's that stupid accent from? Or, like, yeah, it's just not right, you two being to get, like, yeah, I guess if you went looking really hard for that stuff, you probably could have found it. But, (laughs) yeah, in everyday America, I don't think too many people are just lining up to to spit on racial equality. Yeah, I don't think so. Which is encouraging to hear because... Yeah, that would be my biggest concern. I've um my oldest daughter is half black and there's, you know, just places not far from where we live where she's like, yeah, I don't really feel comfortable over in those places. So, it's too bad. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Michigan is a is a particularly weird state. I don't know if it still is, but I read that at one time, I think when I was in college, that it was the most um statistically segregated state in the United States. Wow. Which didn't I guess blow my mind I went to a high school that was almost all white I worked in a school that was almost all black I live in a neighborhood that's almost all white I taught in a neighborhood that was almost all black and Hispanic so I mean you know it's it's real that you see that but within the people that live in those communities though most people are pretty cool you know what racism is not a white issue it's not a black issue it's a human issue yeah And we need to, and I think America especially needs to, start recognizing that racism doesn't belong to any one group, nor does sexism. Mm. Different groups have been disadvantaged and disenfranchised over the years. Mm. But we've come so far, and you have a lot of white people fighting for black rights. You have a lot of men fighting for women's rights. And I believe you know, a lot of blacks fighting for white rights and a lot of women fighting for men equality. So I think that we're seeing a lot more unity than media. I think media is the big problem here. Media Mm. loves to showcase all of this negativity that pulls us apart, where I think that, like Kate said, when we were talking to this couple from Chicago and they were asking us, oh my goodness, you must have faced a lot of racism so far. Illinois is so racist. So it's Missouri. And Kate said, well, no, we haven't faced any, to be honest with you. And they said, oh, well, that's really good to hear, especially, you know, coming from a black woman in a mixed marriage. And Kate said, but I'm not a black woman. And my husband's not a white man. He's Brennan. I'm Kate. This is Tembi. We're just a family traveling Route 66. We understand 
uh, our ethnic differences, but that yeah. does not define who we are. Yeah. Our individual culture defines who we are. Yeah. Any more than your eye color defines who you are. Exactly. Your eye color or how white your teeth are. Yeah. You know? there's, I mean, there's definitely shared experiences that come along with being of a different ethnic group or a different racial group or a different sexual orientation or whatever. But um, yeah, yeah. Not, not enough to make you a completely different animal. See, I would argue. Uh, it's a poor choice of words, but yeah. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> see, I would argue that that's not exclusive though, because I had a lot more in common with my black classmates back home in Kenya than I ever did when we came over to Canada with white Canadians. Mm. So as long as you're having a shared experience, it doesn't matter if, you, if you're different races. Yeah. Well, when Eminem was growing up in, in Michigan, Eminem grew up, his experience with poverty was no different than his black neighbor's experience with poverty. Yeah. They both grew up poor and they both had the struggles that poverty brings people. Mm -hmm. There was no respect for the fact one was white and one was black. Yeah. They were both poor young dudes who were growing up in that trailer park. Yeah. And I think that's a shared experience. We got to get past race. So we got to move into focusing more on the commonality of a shared experience, regardless yeah. of what the race is. Yeah. Steering back towards the book a little bit. Did you uh, have any kind of a plan, a loose plan or a strict plan going into this to write about it on a, you know, the publishable scale or were you just kind of like going to keep a journal and whatever? I didn't. Um, I did keep a journal though. So um, there's a lot of conversations in the book. Mm -hmm. It's funny because one uh, media. Oh, and I got to say too, I love that at the, at the back end of the book that all these people that you met, you like do little like follow-ups at the time of publishing this person is you know graduated now and on their way to school by the way when i see a movie i'm sure you're the same when the movie's done if it's a true story you want to know what's happened to those people yeah yeah, yeah. i yeah. hate when they so and so's in jail now so and so <laughs> married and moved to massachusetts yeah whatever right it makes it interesting you know what i keep uh copious amounts of notes anytime i travel because i'm always fascinated by the human story Mm -hmm. And so conversations, I love conversations. And you get that really journalistic like, background, even if it doesn't go way back in like college still. That like, oh, this needs to be noted, footnoted. and <laughs> Oh, I'm terrible. I'll be at an airport and I'm sitting there. And if I have no one to talk to, I look around and try to figure out how do I start up a conversation with him? You know, or whether it's, <laughs> I, I just, I'm in people's face trying to dialogue. So yeah. no, uh, but after the, probably halfway through the trip, I said, you know what? This could be a great book. We need an American focused, non narrative, uh, uh, narrative nonfiction, narrative nonfiction slash travelogue. There's almost none. You know, Kerouac had his great book on the road. We have uh, Blue Highways. Um, Bill Bryson did Lost in America. We, we have so few of the, the books that are coming out that whether they be travelogues that aren't focused in on America, they're mm -hmm. focusing on India, Africa, Pakistan, all the international travel, but not what's in the backyard, which is the most fascinating for someone like me, anyhow, um, or their information and guidebooks. Everything's information, information, information. These are the ghost towns of 66. These are, I don't know, the best hits along 66, the places you have to go. Those are great. Those are needed. But there were, were really no modern great stories, stories of people being transported with someone as they traveled across the country, seeing what they've seen, meeting the people they met, laughing at the things they get to laugh at, listening at like a fly on the wall to conversations. And so I've, I love those books. I felt it was missing. I felt there's a big audience. And so I wrote it when I seen that that this trip was going to generate enough experiences to do it. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, well, you said about halfway through you realized uh -huh. this needs to be a book. So uh, at what point did you actually start taking your notes and everything else and starting that first draft on it? Not until October. So we got back in September. I started pulling everything together and um, having everything transcribed because I don't write until I have it all in front of me. 
Mm-hmm. So I had someone, I paid someone to transcribe it for me. And I, I think I underestimate, oh, because, yeah, I, I took notes, but I had a tape recorder. So I would mm. uh, record stuff as I went just for accuracy. Yeah. And I underestimated how long that would take that poor person I hired. But <laughs> <laughs> I got reams of paperback when once I printed up everything he transcribed. There was like 400 pages of notes. Once well, you're I keeping the economy going, man. Good job. Yeah, I'm cutting down on the trees. <laughs> So that's a problem. Um, once I had all that, it was like October, and that's when I started pulling it together. But it would t- take four more years to pull this thing finally where it's at. So in that time, how much of it was just getting the first draft beginning, middle, and done? And then you know, how much time was cleaning that up and getting it into what we see now? Four months. It took four months to write the whole book. Okay. It took that's two. that's pretty fast writing. Uh, once I sit down, I write. I Yeah, I have a lot of discipline with that. If I say I got to write, I got to write. That's my time. So I focus in and I write. Bless you. Yeah, but it's, it's as I get older, it's getting harder. But <laughs> <laughs> um, And then probably three years cleaning it up and... You know, I, like I said, I believe in putting the right people around me. Mm-hmm. So one of the key things that I did was I put two really wonderful Route 66 authors around me early on. Uh, Michael Wallace. Not the same. No, that's Mike Wallace from 60 Minutes. Not that yeah, guy. That's different. Okay. Uh, Michael Wallace is probably the most successful Route 66 writer. So Wallace did his first book in 1990. It was um, It was done by... Uh, St. Martin's Press, and basically it was like a love letter to Route 66. So Michael and his wife, who's a lovely lady too, they got out on the road and they traveled Route 66, and he's been connected to it since he was a boy in St. Louis and other places. And he wanted to really see what was left of Route 66. And then they discovered a lot, like 85% of the road is still drivable, by the way. Hmm. So he wrote this book. And the press published it and it won a ton of awards and it put fire under a resurgence for the road. And that was 1990. And that was the start or the really the first start of a resurgence for Route 66. He introduced the road to a million people just by that book. Yeah. I would have been so young that I, at that time, I wouldn't have uh, recognized the significance of it. I would have just grown up in a world where it was significant. Exactly. That's how many of us would be. And, yeah. and but his book, I mean, he went on to, because of that book, John Lasseter contacted him to take him and Pixar down the highway mm-hmm. in order to get to understand Route 66 for themselves before writing the script for Cars. That's fun. Yeah, that's how influential it was. And then the other writer was a fellow named Jim Hinckley. And Jim has 20 Route 66 books under his under his belt now. Wow. Yeah. And so I put both of these guys who know Route 66 very well. They're book writers. I hadn't been. I was a magazine guy. And I just started picking their brain about the need for this book, about my concept and idea, about the market. Um really America's appetite for it. And they were just both so encouraging and so supportive and they shared so many wonderful ideas. So I really, in that three years, put a lot of really great people around me who really were able to give a lot of really good feedback and and help shape the book into what it is today. And Michael, actually, I'm very honored he did the foreword for this book. Oh, nice. Yeah. Coming into this interview, I was a little more intimidated than most writers because I wrote a novel and all the other writers I've talked to were novelists or uh, one blogger, which I've also done SEO blogging, but I've never written a nonfiction book. And part of my brain is like, well, that might be easier because you already know the information. It's just a matter of putting it into, into form. But then the other part of me would be like, oh, well, you know, I'm used to 
fiction where I can just make up anything I need to to keep the story going. So what uh, what what is, uh, I guess, the give and take on that, in, in your opinion, having written fiction, like you said, a short story guy kind of by uh, by nature? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know all the good questions to ask on it even. But what, uh, I guess, is kind of the similarities and differences you've seen from writing fiction and nonfiction? There's several things. A, um, you're going to be held a lot more to account much more because you're writing with something that people can confirm when, mm-hmm. when they look at your content, whether you're doing a, bio, a biography of someone or you're writing about the history of baseball in the United States or whether you're doing a, a nonfiction book on Route 66. Yeah, which is what scares the hell out of me because people are like, yeah, that's a nice sentence, dude, but it's not true. It's not accurate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know what? On the other side, you do have a lot of material to work with because you can do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. Also, it's much easier, I'm told, to sell a fictional book to a publisher than it is nonfiction. Nonfiction is really limited these days because it's a very crowded market. Mm. You know what fiction is as well. I, I I hate. Okay, and no offense to anyone you've brought on or yourself even, but I am not a big fan of self-publishing. Okay, I I don't like it simply because you do have some people that are really talented, mm. and I think that that talent always shines through. So if you got a great book and it takes you three years to find someone to publish it, I think take your three years and use that time to either work on another project while on the side you're really continuing to try to find a great home for it Mm. or um, make the changes to it over time that like I did that need to be done to make an even better book and then still keep looking for a home. I think what the internet has done self-publishing or YouTube or Vimeo or just anything that allows what was once a very high profile group of people you know, music deals or book deals or actors who got, you know, casted on a great show or, or people who are DJs on, you know, great radio stations or this or that. What the internet has done is allowed us to water down the professional side of things Mm. so that anybody and everyone who thinks that they're a great singer or a great writer or a great actor or a great anything really, that they can find a platform. So obviously, I don't want to say, well, people shouldn't do something that bring, brings some pleasure. Mm. But we also live in a time of participation awards. And, you know, you came in dead last out <laughs> of 400 people, but good on you, Billy. You know, I'm not one of those guys. I really do believe in the merit of success. Mm. Um, and I do believe that as a writer, that good work does rise to the top, even if it takes a bit of time for it to be Scene. In fact, when Matthew McConaughey was shopping around his script for Dallas Buyers Club. I know the movie. I haven't seen it, though. Oh, it's a wonderful, wonderful, again, true story. But Matthew got rejected by it. And this was Matthew McConaughey. He opened movies for 20 years as he was shopping this script. Yeah. He rejected by 84 studios. One studio then finally said yes, and it won him a bunch of Academy Awards. You know, it's... And it was a wonderful movie that shone a lot of light on an important subject. So with time, the the best talent, the best stories will find a home. Yeah. And so I really, I don't, I would never say give up to somebody. What I'd say is don't go it alone because it's too crowded of a market. Keep believing in what you're doing and look for a great home, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Yeah. That just... That's that's good advice, but it's it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to take when you're living in it. I do have a friend. Um, he's got a, a good podcast too. It's called The Reluctant Book Marketer. His name is Jody Sperling. Have you done all the hard work of writing a book, but you can't get it in enough readers' hands? If so, check out my podcast, The Reluctant Book Marketer, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And um, he's got a book that has an agent, and his agent is keeps saying like, "Please let me." Let me try to sell this. Don't self-publish this. I think I can find a home for this. Right. But it's been a couple of years now. But that agent is saying like, no, please let me keep. And as far as I know, the agent doesn't make any money until the book is sold. Right. So it's not like this agent's just milking this person uh, dry slowly over 
<laughs> over a couple of years. Um, Things and yeah, he's 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 gone back and forth, but he's like, no, I'm gonna let my agent do her thing. Things change, and so what you don't have any interest in today, next year may be the fad. Yeah. Reality television, when you and I were growing up, was in its infancy. I mean, it took us to be in our twenties before you know. Um, Survivor or American Idol came, you know, reality TV, there was no such thing. And suddenly, boom, it exploded and it's everywhere. And, um, you know, so if somebody had a reality TV show idea that got canned by every single st- television network that they pitched it to, suddenly come 2006, that may be a great idea that makes a million dollars on TV. So timing is everything. Yeah. And people need to not be in a rush. My wife is always reminding me, aren't you glad that the book never? found a home until it did because yeah. it was a great book before but it's a much better book now and if you had a got gotten a great publishing deal two years ago it might not have been in the state it's in now and people wouldn't get to enjoy the book to this to the level where hopefully they will but i did at this point and now it's going to be a better experience for readers and everyone involved timing is everything we like to rush through things we don't like to be patient we don't like to wait but sometimes it's the best thing for us and our book. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I did go ahead and self-publish mine, but the one thing I will say for mine is that I spent time researching people that would actually help me make it good. (laughs) So I got a professional designer. I, a couple of my friends who are writers who also do things in publishing too. Um, one edited it, one formatted it. So it doesn't look like a self-published book and it doesn't read, you know, well, hopefully I'm not just blowing how, smoke up my own. How is it done with sales? Uh, so far it's been out since June and it's got a couple of hundred books in, nice. in a couple of different countries through direct sales. I've been working that pretty hard. And then also on uh, online sales through my website and then on Amazon. Awesome. Yeah. You know what? But I also have this podcast. I've had a blog and I've talked about somebody uh, recently on their podcast that I put about two years of prep into like kind of getting things going and making sure things looked good enough to do it. But uh, I've definitely seen a lot of people who were just like, oh, you know, I used a computer program and made this cover and I edited it myself and okay. But, you know, everybody's got their own journey too. some people are just really happy to have a, a physical book that they can say this is mine and if that's if that's what makes you really happy then i guess cool you know yeah but you know the beauty of what you're doing is if you get the sales up enough you'll be able to attract a great literary agent get a great literary agent and they you own the rights to the book they can help you resell it I didn't even get on social media until I started trying to shop the book originally. And the f- first thing they say is, well, uh, what's your Twitter feed? I'm like, oh, tw- oh, I need to get a Twitter. So, <laughs> like, This guy has like five followers on Twitter and this is his first book. I had several agents go, you know what? Uh, so-and-so might like this. And then so-and-so read and goes, oh, you know what? I've already got like five books that are sci-fi, yeah. dystopian you have anything else? And well, I'm working on something else. Okay, well, send that to me when you got that. And I just thought, okay. And then I talked to small presses and the small presses did the route of, well, it's your first book, so we're not going to give you a big advance. And then we'll give you 40% of the royalties. I'm like, 40%? Okay, I've got the blog. I've got the podcast. I've met some people that can help me out. I can do that myself at least and try to match the numbers that I would have got at a small press. Sure. Well, I wish you all the success. I think, I mean... It's so hard to write a book. It, mm. it really <laughs> yeah, you and I can both attest. It's, it's a. Uh, I can't remember what writer said. It's the closest thing a man will uh, know to being pregnant. Yeah, you're giving birth to it. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? More about the book. More about anything else, or uh, anything we left on the table? No, I mean I'm curious what uh, I'm, the sections that you got to read. I don't know if you managed to finish the whole thing. But what's, I mean, I'm curious uh, as a reader, what stood out to you? What, 
is this a book that you read before, like in other people's books? Is this a fresh take, a fresh approach for you as a reader? What What do you feel stood out to you from reading this book? Well, actually, one thing I had a note somewhere that I was when I was reading. It doesn't read like a nonfiction book, and maybe maybe I don't give nonfiction enough credit because I do read mostly fiction um, outside of like news. Uh, but even just in the opening, uh, trying to remember how that how you worded that. You were talking about the uh, seeing your child in the hospital, and what did you call it? A spaceship like, yeah, a spaceship like glass uh, uh, incubator or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Just so, yeah, I noticed right away that uh, oh, this is actually going to be like a fun a fun tone and style to it not just not just we left on this day on this day it was hot you know what i mean um the language and any of the parts with the people because that's what stuck out to me the most was i guess how much this stuff okay hold on if you were to make this trip completely on your own and there were no people, you just saw the things, then that's, you know, okay. So it's the people that uh, make something what it is, or at least make something enjoyable. So I focused in on uh, all the, all the conversations and then also following up on the notes with the people after the fact too. I wasn't expecting to answer questions today. Did that answer your question a little bit, at least? Yeah. You know what? I mean, I'm identical to that. It's the conversations in these type of books that I love the most. Yeah. It's the observations of people and and places that I love the most. And so one of the things that I cut back out of necessity were just some conversations, but I tried to keep the very best inside there. Um, There was one that I wanted in there, but the publisher wanted it out. I think they were afraid of offending somebody. But um, I met Charles Manson's daughter. Yeah. Yeah, she was a character and a half. I didn't even know he had a daughter. I've seen, uh, I think, his son or one of his sons on TV before. Excuse me, before, but. Yeah. I'm trying to think how old, because he's passed away, but he was like in his 80s. So how old would his daughter be? Like 50s, 60s? She would have been. Easily late 40s, maybe early 40s. Okay. And I met her at the Big Texan in Amarillo. And the Big Texan is like a carnival experience in its own right. So Mm. it's like the perfect place to possibly meet her. Is she from there or is she passing through? She was working there. She was working there. Yeah, she was um, like mopping floors and stuff. She was cleaning. And how did it come out that this... (laughs) that she was Charles Manson's kid. So I was having dinner with the owner, Bobby Lee, who's a hell of a guy. He's got a great story himself. And the big Texan has a wonderful story and a great 72 ounce steak eating competition. And so we're having dinner and I'm watching. It's like a carnival. I mean, the place is packed. Um, There's like a din of energy of everybody talking all at once. And, and up on, front on stage in the front of the place is a table with a, a clock you have one hour to eat your 72 ounce steak and all the trimmings the shrimp and the buns and the salad and everything and if you can finish 72 ounces and all the trimmings you get it for free and so i'm watching as these insane people are up there trying to digest all this food in one hour and then the girl walks by with the mop and then Bobby said, and I were talking and he said, hold on, hold on. I want you to meet somebody. And he, he asked her to come over. And then she came over and he asked, um, guess whose daughter this is? So well, that's a random question. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I'm not quite sure whose daughter that is. And he said, Charles Manson's. He said, the serial killer? He said, yeah. He said, no. He said, yeah. So then I asked her, is that true? Are you really Charlie Manson's daughter? And she just, she kind of looked down, like she got shy. And she said, yeah, I am. And I said, wow, he's your dad? 
And she just kind of nodded. And then I asked you, you know, he's gone now, but did you ever visit him in prison or anything? Did you know him at all? She said, no, no. He was in prison my entire life. I never knew him. And then she, but she looked really uncomfortable, really almost out of place. Hmm. And so we just released her to let her go. She obviously wasn't keen on, on the attention and I didn't want to make her uncomfortable. So we let her go. Hmm. But I said to Bobby, what a crazy, crazy introduction to make, but this is the perfect place to actually do it in the middle of all this carnival. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you meet these people and, um, you know, like uh, the girls at the Cadillac ranch, the girl who got herself caught on the barbed wire fence, you know, you, you see all these things happening in front of you. And it's almost like it's part of the story of during your trip, you know, because you're watching all these people go through these things that are affecting their lives. Yeah. And you just like a voyeur just stand back and watch it all. And it just makes everything so fascinating as you travel. And I believe that that translates easily into something fascinating for somebody to read about and to get to know the people and the things that someone has experienced or encountered themselves as they travel an iconic road like Route 66. So I'm not shocked that you enjoyed the dialogue because I think a lot of us connect with that dialogue and Mm -hmm. we find it fascinating. Yeah. Even in my own life, I think back on big experiences and the people that were around for it, even if they weren't part of the particular experience, the memorable thing, like that they're all part of it. Yeah, very much. They're part of you. Yeah, yeah. Like that Beatles song in my life. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. Yeah. Well, Brendan, thank you for coming on the show. I uh, enjoyed talking to you. This book is fantastic, and there will be links for it in the notes, and I will uh, plug the show uh, after it comes out, too, and tag you on any social media you're on. Perfect. All right, everybody. That was Brennan Matthews. Wasn't he delightful? I think so, too. Please check out his book, Miles to Go, An African Family in Search of America Along Route 66. That's all I got, everybody. I will see you next time. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Weird, right?